Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 15. It's also the text for our sermon as we continue our series in the book of Genesis, and also as we begin a sub-series called The Shape of the Sun, which I'll explain in a few moments. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark... Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Luke 2, verses 22 through 38. We read here the accounts of the newborn Jesus being brought to the temple. 
Luke 2, verses 22 through 38. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God, and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your goodness to us in making yourself known. We pray that you would cause that to be our experience as your gathered church. That is, you would cause yourself to be made known to us by the presence of your Holy Spirit. As we seek your Spirit's presence, we are humbly acknowledging our own weakness and that we come before you this morning daring not to think that we control or manipulate your presence by our words or by our actions. It is in response to your promise, it is confident in your promise, that we pray for your Spirit's presence and work among us. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we think or picture or imagine in our minds the gospel accounts of the work of Jesus in Israel, especially because that story led to the cross, it is very easy for us to summarize in our minds that story as a matter of so many of his own people rejecting him. And that was true. 
there were many who rejected him. That was a big part of why he suffered and died. But when we do that, it's easy to forget that there were many in Israel who recognized him. Many in Israel who readily identified him and received him as the Messiah. Indeed, that also is one of the dominant stories of the Gospels. The very formation of the disciples and the many accounts that tell us there were hundreds of others and the account we just read this morning of Simeon and Anna in the temple. Even when Jesus was so very young, before his public ministry, recognizing him. And one of the most joyful things to do in our reading of the scriptures, in our enjoying the scriptures together, is to ask, why? How? Now, for Simeon and Anna in particular, we can say, and we ought to say, because it's said explicitly, at least at some level, that the Holy Spirit was acting in a particular way to enable certain individuals to testify to what was happening. And we should say that. But we should not let that be other than or the opposite of the fact that God also uses ordinary means. That Simeon and Anna grew up knowing the scriptures. They grew up trusting in the scriptures. And those scriptures formed in them the ability to be wise in identifying the Messiah. That the promises of God, the way way God made himself known in the scriptures, made them ready to recognize who Jesus was. And there are things that Simeon says in the account we just read from Luke chapter 2 that were very clearly formed by those scriptures. The Holy Spirit shaped his faith to recognize the Messiah. Well, this morning we are beginning a bit of an Advent series. It's also part of our Genesis series. And the theme of this series is what I'm calling the shape of the sun, S-O-N. And we're going to be considering various ways that in the sequence of four chapters from Genesis, we see the shape of the eternal Son of God. Now, some of you will remember, well, there have been various points in the last few months where you've wondered, why did we move so quickly through that part of Genesis? The four chapters of the story of the flood only got two sermons. One of the reasons is I wanted to get here right now this morning in the series to make it line up for Advent. Four chapters that all in their own way say something about who God is and who God is particularly as he would be revealed in Christ. Now when I say the shape of the sun, I am not making a distinct Trinitarian claim that at every point in these chapters in Genesis it is the Son of God only or in particular who's acting. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are acting in all of these events. But there are things in these events that point forward to Christ. And I want us to see in that, similar to what we saw two years ago during Advent, how when the Old Testament points forward to Christ, it is also pointing upward to who the eternal Son of God is. It is pointing upward to who God is eternally. Not just forward on the timeline, but God eternally making himself known in both Old Testament and New Testament together. I'll be explaining that more as the series goes on. With that expectation, we come to Genesis 15. What are we anticipating? The shape of the sun, God being made known in a way that points forward to who Christ would be in his first advent. Genesis 15, an account of God 
renewing his covenant with Abram. The covenant was first made in Genesis 12. Here it is made again. Genesis 17, it's going to happen again. These three passages summarizing together God's covenant with Abram. In this text in particular, we have the beautiful, the famous verse used by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, Genesis 15, verse 6. And he believed the Lord... And he counted it to him as righteousness. The famous verse in this text being that description of Abraham's faith, which the New Testament then uses as an exemplar for our faith in the church of Jesus Christ. If we're going to read this text the way the New Testament tells us to, one of the things we must do is see Abraham's faith and see our call to the same faith. But, and maybe you felt the but coming, a bit of a warning. Even emphasizing faith can be done legalistically. And I know that may sound strange to you, especially those of us who have grown up in a very legalistic context, and we have discovered the Reformed emphases on faith, faith as opposed to works, faith as that which receives rather than our actions doing, when we discover that focus on faith, we discover in a very liberating and freeing way, and all of that is well and good. Even in Reformed churches, though, even faith can be spoken of legalistically. Do you have faith? Do you have enough faith? Is your faith strong enough? How about this one? Is your faith real? Will your faith last? Does your faith love God, desire God, trust in God as it should? In that time of fear, anxiety, trial that you are facing right now, is your faith really proving itself? Now, all I've talked about is faith, but aren't we all kind of panicking right now? Right? Because, no, well, no, surely, if, if, that's, if that's how we approach this, well, man, my, my faith, it's weak. It, it falters. It's not perfect. My faith cannot be the work I contribute, and there's the point. Even when the focus is on faith, our focus must, in fact, be on the God in whom we are called to place our faith. Even when we talk about faith, the whole point is that faith looks away from itself to the promises of God. So as we come to Genesis 15 this morning, we need the very same thing that Abram needed. We need a vision of God's heavenly glory to strengthen and encourage our faith. And so if we're going to talk about faith, but in a way that is not legalistic, where must we begin but with the promises of God? That's where we begin this morning. We're going to see three things. The promises of God. Second, the faith of Abram in response to those promises. And then third, the sign of the covenant that God gives. First, the promises of God. In this passage, we are given the phrase that the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Literally, the Hebrew phrase, the Lord cut a covenant. And that's going to matter for what happens later in the passage. The Lord made a covenant. Don't think of made here as though it didn't exist before. This is a kind of renewing, a remaking, a making new the covenant with Abram. Because all the promises he gives are promises he's already given. What are the two main promises? Land and descendants. And in this passage, God renews those promises. Abram says in verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? And 
God renews his promise that he will give him a son. His son will be his heir. He takes him outside and tells him to to look at the stars. And he says, so shall your offspring be. Just as you can't count the stars, Abram, and there was no light pollution, so he could see a whole lot more than we can. Just as you cannot count the stars, Abram, so you will not be able to count your descendants. And the New Testament tells us, the Old Testament also makes clear, that was a promise ultimately of the nations, the church being gathered as the Israel of God. The second promise is land, and God renews that promise from Abram, or for Abram. He gives him the promise that his descendants, though they will sojourn in a land not their own, this is alluding to what will happen when they are enslaved in Egypt, they will be brought out and they will be given the land of Canaan. And God has renewed and made these promises for Abram's faith. He also tells him that his, his descendants receiving the land is going to happen way in the future. And here's where he makes clear to him, you're not going to see it. And he says these words. Verse 15. As for you, and this is a contrast now, so he's saying you're, you're not going to see, this is going to happen for your descendants, not for you in particular. He says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Now, I want us to dwell on that just for a moment. I don't think it's the main point. The way the Lord is speaking here is just in a common way of speaking of death. But I want you to notice how the Lord says this to Abram with the tone of it being included within the promise. That there's a tone of, of in this, in a sense, speaking of Abram's death, being one of the good things that God is setting before him. That you shall go to your fathers in peace. Now what a way of speaking of a faith-filled death. And you shall be buried in a good old age. Two things I want to say about this. Death is an enemy, a foreign invader in God's good creation. It is a result of the curse. But on the other side of having received God's promises, on the other side of having received the gospel and knowing who God is and his promise to undo that curse, we now relate to death differently. It is a curse. It does not belong. But on this side of the promises of God, we can speak of the whole arc of life, all of the seasons of life, including aging and death, as being, in some mysterious way, a good thing. Ultimately, our entrance into eternal life, as our catechism will say. Why can God already make this clear here? Well, it's because of the language of promise that he has already spoken to Abram. He says in this passage, beautifully, before he does this renewing of uh, descendants and land, he says in verse 1, let's read the whole verse. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Why can God speak of Abram within the context of promise going to the grave? 
Because his reward is ultimately not in the things of this life on this side of the new creation. That his reward ultimately, some of you may remember some older English translations say, I am your shield and your very great reward. Meaning, God is your reward. Now that's an interpretation, but it's a good one. What God is saying is that he just is Abram's reward. And there is this thread of hope running throughout the Old Testament scriptures, expressed beautifully in the Psalms, but also elsewhere, that God's steadfast love, his faithfulness is so strong that death itself cannot break it. That God's binding himself to his people is so strong that even death cannot undo what God has done. And that hope lies behind, beneath, throughout all that is said in this passage. So God can simply say, seemingly without explanation, oh, and Abram, all my promises to you include you're going to die and go to the grave. Because what was the first promise? I am your shield, your reward is very great. One more thing about that. God uses reward to motivate his people. Are you okay with that? I wonder, God uses reward. He says one of the things that should motivate you to be faithful, one of the things that should motivate you to persevere through life is he says, I'm going to give you good things. Now, when I start talking that way, or when you hear anyone start talking that way, because we've often heard it perhaps in crass or, or misleading ways being spoken, when we hear that, we have all sorts of worries, saying, is this, is this a prosperity gospel? Well, no, of course not. Right alongside all those promises are the affirmation of suffering and the brokenness of life and the reality of affliction. All of that is true. Okay, well, is, is this somehow just sort of some unspiritual saying, God is going to reward you with things and so you, you do that? Shouldn't, shouldn't we obey God just because God says so? Shouldn't we obey God without needing a reward? And there's something, some sort of piety in us that won't let us think in terms of a reward set before us. Uh, we could summarize the whole point this way. Don't try to be more spiritual than God. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. God sets rewards before you. He talks about, in his word, the fruitfulness of life, according to his word. He sets before you, in his word, the glory of the new creation and resurrection bodies and life in the world set right. He sets before you, in his word, himself. And the scriptures are clear. Here with Genesis, it is clear. What is the reward ultimately but God himself? And this is why it is not unspiritual. This is why it is not a problem to think in terms of reward because even the most earthy good things of this life are good because they point to that reality of God's presence in the new creation to come. So our Lord Jesus Christ says in Revelation 2, to the one who overcomes, I will give the morning star. And then in Revelation 21, he says, well, just pause for a moment. That's reward, by the way. He says, what will motivate you to overcome? I'm going to give you something. The bright morning star. And then in Revelation 21, he says, I am the bright morning star. God promises you himself. We need this. In the moment of temptation, 
In the moment where the thing of this life is not satisfying as you desired it would be, whether it be relationships, marriage, children, family, in the moment in this life where you are enjoying one of God's good gifts, food and drink, work and fruitfulness in this life, and you are tempted to say there's nothing else. That is where destruction looms. To simply give yourself over destructively to that thing of this life. To despair. To throw off the path God has given us. And in that moment, when that thing that you care about is not satisfying as you desire, and there is a temptation to just throw it all away, in that moment, God says to you, there is a greater reward. He says to you, there is more you have been living to all along. And that thing, that reward he sets before you, he sets before you to motivate you to persevere. Don't try to be more spiritual than him. Look to that reward, to that more, to that glory he sets before you as he did for Abraham, so he does for us. The promises of God. Second, Abram's faith. In response to those promises, now being renewed. Land, descendants, that extra language, I am your shield, your reward will be very great. More information about, okay, Abraham, what's going to happen in the future? You're not going to do it. You're actually going to die before any of this happens. Verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. All that the New Testament says so explicitly about faith and the gospel and God's promises being received only by faith flows from, is anchored in what has always been the case. That when Abram believed God simply in the receiving the promise, that is what was counted as righteousness. And so the Apostle Paul will say to those who are telling Gentile Christians, no, they have to become Jewish first. He'll point to this and say, no, look, Abram's faith was counted as righteousness before all the Jewish laws of Deuteronomy and Leviticus were given. To those who would say, no, you also have to pile up a certain number of good works. The New Testament would point to this theme and say, no, look, what God promises is always received only by faith. And what do those works do? They flow from that. Abram stands at this most ancient moment. And he's not the beginning of it. Adam and Eve believed God and his promises. Noah believed God. Genesis 11 will, or excuse me, Hebrews 11 will point to all of these. Abram stands at this most ancient moment as the testimony that God never asks you to earn or deserve anything. He never has. That's never been a thing. He never will. From the very beginning, Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Your faith looks away from yourself to the promises of God. Let us also be clear. I have a bit of a worry. And that's always dangerous because I worry too much. But so, so sometimes you're stuck dealing with things that are a result of my worries because I get to talk up here. So I have a bit of a worry. I worry that some of us, when we hear in a fresh way, as we should, that focus, that announcement, that declaration of it is all grace and faith. It is no earning and deserving. We hear that as somehow contrary to the goodness of the law. Contrary to 
the necessity of obedience and new life and life according to God's word mattering. I worry that some of us, when we hear this emphasis on grace and faith, we think that means we no longer need to be careful and particular about how we live. Genesis 17, in the next moment of covenant renewal, God will begin with the words, walk before me and be blameless. This faith by which we receive the promises of God is a faith that must flow into how we live. The faith by which we receive God's promises is a faith by which we are united to Christ and therefore by which we are transformed. One of the promises God gives us is the promise of new life. One of the promises you are putting your faith in, one of the promises Abram was putting his faith in was the promise of a whole new way of living that is different than the Ur of the Chaldeans from which he was called out. The faith of Abram immediately translated into doing something. He left his father's house and land and went where God told him to go. Now hold on. Others of us, though, want to then veer into that theme in a way where it no longer feels like grace and faith anymore. We must hear all of this as flowing from the gospel, flowing from grace, and then in a grace-saturated way, translating into how we live. What happens then is that the character of our obedience The character of our concern for how we live must change. Gone is the anxious need to prove something. You know what I mean by this? So much pietistic living is driven by the anxious need to prove something. I must, in some sort of scrupulous way, look different than everyone else so I can prove to myself I really am changed, I really am righteous, I really am holy. And there's now an obsession with, in, by sheer scrupulosity, proving something anxiously. That is what goes away when it is a matter of faith and grace. It's all in God's promise, now translated into living. What else goes away? The obsession with rules. What is the point to God's law? It's a wise orientation to reality. Life with the grain of reality. So now what God's law is pointing us to do is to say, look at the good he has made and embrace the good. Live with the good, with the grain of the good. You see, if if we're relating to God in terms of our works, proving something by our works, that's not good enough. Because living with the grain of reality often looks really ordinary. It often looks like how a lot of wise unbelievers live. And if we're going to, by sheer scrupulosity, prove something, that's not good enough. But if it's all grace and faith, this transforms how we think about obedience. And in that context, by all means, be concerned with wisdom, the very specifics of wisdom. As God will say to Abram, walk before me and be blameless. We could talk all morning about that. We need to stop. Next, Abram's faith. What was the point to all that? Abram's faith translates into living. Another thing about Abram's faith. This entire passage is structured around 
Abram's questioning. It's all structured around Abram's, dare we say, doubting. Listen to it. God appears to Abram. Abram's seen some crazy stuff, all right? Like with his eyes. God appears to Abram and says, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Whoa, God told him, you're going to have many descendants. Nations, he says, Abram says, my heir is this guy. And then Abram says in verse 3, and some detect in this even an element of... um, Almost a kind of sinful doubt. I don't, I, don't, I don't think so. I think what Abram's doing in this part is still just fine. But you should be struck by it, though. You should at least wrestle with what is Abram doing. He says, Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Whew. Do you let yourself say that kind of thing? I hear what you're saying, God, but I don't see it. And what does God say? And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. There's another cycle. All right, so that was the first few verses about descendants. Verse 7. So God just somehow, we don't know how this is happening, some sort of vision kind of thing. We don't know what that means. That's really mean a dream. We don't know how this is happening. God shows Abram the stars and says... That's a promise to you, right? Anyone else pretty sure they'd be good at this point? Like, okay, I got it. I'm good. I'm good. And he said to him, verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. But he that is Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And God said, because I said so. Oh, no. It's not what God said. What does God do? gives him the sign of the covenant. There is not a single word of reprimand from Abram. And all we have in the center of the passage is verse 6. Here's our assessment. Here's God's view of the situation. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Y'all okay with that? Hope so. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt does not contradict faith. Doubt fits within faith. Now, we have to make some distinctions. There is such a thing as a fist-shaking rebellion against God and His Word. There is such a thing as the kind of doubt that attacks God and His Word, that is simply going the opposite direction, that refuses to look at even a sign, that will take nothing and shakes the fist at the Lord saying, who cares? There is the nations who will say, where is their God? As the Psalms tell us. But the Psalms also tell us that there are the covenant people who say, where is God? And you see, those are different things. And you need to know these are different things. That yes, there is such a thing as fist-shaking rebellion against the Lord. Set that aside. Yes, we reject that. Don't do that. That's not the point here. 
all of you have doubts of some kind right now. List the kinds. Moments of temptation are ultimately doubt. Do you believe God is good? Do you believe that the life he has called you to is the life that is good? Do you believe the path he has shown you is the path that is good? Because insofar as you see its goodness and you see the evil of the rebellion, that's faith in what God has said. It's doubt when we're tempted by that path of rebellion. Maybe it's philosophical doubt. God has given us wondrous minds able to wrestle with the nature of reality and all that is in often delightful ways, mysterious and beyond us about the world, that also, though, can also haunt us. That we do not know and experience God's presence as we desire to. And so all of those wonderful questions and things we can wrestle with also haunt and disturb. Or in the times of very, well, Times where the way life goes looks the opposite of God being good to us. Here is what you experience then. It is the feeling that I could be more sure. It is the awareness that I'd like to be more sure. It's the desire to feel more sure. It's the desire to experience more effortlessly. Why does it have to be so hard? It's the awareness that so much of Christian faith is personal. It's not simply information. You can have all the information straight in a meaningful way. I don't mean to despise that. In a wise way, and it's still so difficult. All of that, dear sister, dear brother, all of that is included within faith. In those moments when you see that happen, because see, if we don't have that straight, and there are so many ways we get this wrong, there are so many influences in the Christian church and the Christian life that speak in a way that encourages us to get this wrong. We start to want to look inside then. Well, if I have this doubt, then do I really have faith? If I feel this way in this trial, am I really trusting the Lord? And I'm not really trusting the Lord, I'm not really Christian, not so you see how that tailspin goes. We need this clarity that Abram, the very exemplar of faith, doubts, questions, and what does God do? He encourages him. He strengthens him. You see, there is a pattern in both of those cycles of doubt where God, a doubt is expressed, God gives a word of promise, and then he gives a sign to strengthen Abram's faith in that promise. He does this pattern over and over, which is, by the way, the exact same pattern of what God does for you. Six days of the week, (laughs) doubts accrue. God gives his word of promise on the Lord's day, and he gives the covenant sign to strengthen our faith in that promise. Third, and concluding this morning, the covenant sign. God in no way reprimands Abram. He simply helps him. After verse 8, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? The Lord tells him to bring out some animals. And then, that's all we're told Abram tells him to do, but Abram cuts them in half and makes a path between the animals. God gives his words of promise. Then verse 17 When the sun had gone down and it was dark, 
Actually, rewind. There was a different darkness first, before that dark. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. That's not just because the sun is going down. Something is happening. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, all right, now, okay, we got that. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And then God gives the word of promise. Stay in the dreadful and deep darkness. Stay, where then there is a theophany, we call it. A visual expression of God's glory in the creation. A smoking fire pot. It means an oven, but we don't say oven because would, we would picture the wrong thing. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. A visible expression of God's glory. So deep darkness, but also the glory of God present with Abram, passing through the pieces. And God gives all of that as the answer to Abram's questioning. God's very presence with doubting Abram. And brothers and sisters, it is full of promise. The halves of the animals. See, there's a couple different ways to get at what this means. There's the ways that fit with the threads of what we see in Scripture, very important. There's also ways we learn from the culture around Israel what was normal at the time. One of those threads through Scripture, the halves, the pairing, very much covenant symbolism of the two parties of the covenant being united together. And so God is giving a promise of His unity with His people. Some have even said that then those uh, birds of prey that Abram chases off are like the Gentile nations attacking the covenant people, and God is pr promising that they will be protected. This imagery is full of all of those kinds of illusions. God and His people together, His people being protected when they're about to go into exile. There's also, even more clearly, we know through all sorts of Old Testament fun stuff that the animal represents the worshiper. It represents Israel. And so here we have the animal representing the covenant people and the theophany of God's presence within, among the covenant people. And God promising thereby, I am with you. God's promise of Emmanuel, God with us. And here we have, in such clear terms, the shape of the sun of what God would make most clear in the incarnation of Christ, of His identity as the one who is with His people. And yet, the great question is, how? Did we all just forget the deep and dreadful darkness? Abram's a sinner, we know that. In fact, how did all of this begin? Back in verse 1, what are the, what's the first thing God had to say? Because this is what it's like to be in the presence of the Creator. What did God have to say? Fear not. And here is where we are helped by scholars who will point to this actually being a thing we see in other in cultures around Israel. That when Abram cut the animals in half, he knew what to do because that actually wasn't strange. It's a covenant-making thing. And what would happen is the two parties of the covenant would walk between the animals. And this is what we call a self-maledictory oath. That's a fun word. 
Benediction means blessing. Malediction means curse. So what you're doing, you're walking through the pieces and you're saying, may this happen to me if I don't keep my side of the covenant. Who goes through the pieces? Only God. Abram does not. And here then is the promise that God would one day be the one to take upon himself in the eternal Son of God, incarnate our Lord Jesus Christ. He would take upon himself all that makes this relationship impossible. That he would, in his suffering and death in Christ, do what needed to be done to bring about all of these glorious promises. And Abram doesn't contribute a thing. And so, at the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, Simeon turns to Mary, Jesus' mother, and says, a sword will pierce your soul also. Simeon knows this Messiah is going to have to do some difficult stuff. Simeon knows this child is born to suffer. And one of the ways he knows is this passage. It is eternally the case. It was always the case that God said when he would act, when he would do what needed to be done to restore his people to himself, it would be a matter of him doing what needed to be done, him bringing it upon himself, him accomplishing in his own person what needed to be done to restore the covenant people to relationship with him. And brothers and sisters, this stands as God's promise to you. Remember, not just pointing forward to Christ, but pointing up to who God is, to His very character and nature. And you see, we look forward to the same promises, to all nations gathered in the new creation, to the world set right, to bodies raised, to the glory of the presence of God, to God Himself being our reward. And we doubt, and that's okay. And then God gives us the covenant sign, and He says, let me get you through it. God gives us the covenant sign and he says, let me give you what you need so you can make it there. And that too is his grace for us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We ask you to be present with us through your word and sacrament, through our fellowship, that we might persevere by faith. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.